0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Roner Park area. But we've been talking about church history, and this evening we come to our final lesson on church history. and. It's been a long series for us. Uh, this was a temporary replacement for a series last, uh, last summer, and I only intended to go for a short while, but now we've been over a year on this subject. And I still have a couple, maybe three messages that are left to do on the church. Uh, one of those I'm gonna do on a Sunday morning instead of Sunday night. But this evening will be our conclusion on the history portion of it. And uh, before I reach this point, I thought that we might go just a little bit further than we have already and uh, to discuss some other things about uh, church history, but I think that what we can do is sort of sum things up tonight with a few comments and some summary notes and fill in some gaps and some areas that will bring us up to the present time in which we live today. And it's been 2,000 years since the Lord began His church. It's still going strong and uh, we know that it will be with certainty according to the promise that we have in Matthew 16:18, where Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so we have full confidence that just as Jesus said, the church will be here until he comes again. And if that's another 2,000 years, then it'll still be going strong just exactly as he promised. Now, what I'd like to do this evening is to call your attention once again to the period of revivalism. And I wanted to finish up that section uh, before we move on with a summary statement of our study. Uh, Revivalism has actually had a profound effect on Baptist theology from about 1850 to the present. And by now you should be very much aware of the issues that uh, we've talked about concerning revivalism. And one of the main things, uh, one of the main issues and problems that came out of that particular era was the abandonment by many Baptists of the doctrines of grace. Now, that took a a period of time for that to happen, but that's the situation that we find ourselves in today, that revivalism, uh, starting with revivalism, the belief in doctrines of grace and teaching of that has sort of uh, departed from Baptist churches. Uh, That was resisted very strongly uh, by the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention before the Civil War, but unfortunately, even that great institution is finally did finally succumb to the uh, tactics of revivalism in the early part of the 20th century. And so you find even among Southern Baptists who very strongly oppose this, the very same tactics of revivalism. But we do thank the Lord that there has been a movement among them to return to their theological roots. And if you're particularly interested in that movement, uh, you can look this up online if you want to make a note of it. uh, You can look up the Founders Ministries and There you'll find some interesting information, uh, some very good doctrinal materials. However, one of the things that you'll find there uh, that's that's kind of disconcerting to us is that the Southern Baptist Convention uh, really does need to get back to the true beginnings of the Baptist Church because now they have embraced the idea that Baptists are Protestants. So they have a different ecclesiology, and I really can't find anything that's more offensive to me as a follower of New Testament teachings and believer in Matthew 16, 18, that somebody would call me a Protestant. Uh, I'm not a Protestant. I, I haven't protested against the Roman Catholic Church. The only protest that I have against it is that I don't believe that it was ever a true church, that it's always been Antichrist from the very beginning. And then I might want to add this as well, that in the very beginning part of our series on history, Uh, We learned there what a true church is. What what does it take to constitute a true church? And we've showed that Baptist churches can trace their history all the way back to the time of Christ and the Apostles. And we weren't always called Baptist. Uh, We know that. We taught that. But we are the only ones that have maintained consistently New Testament teaching since the time of Christ. Now, returning to revivalism, uh, I do want to bring us up into the 20th century. In the last message, I spoke to you about the influence of Dwight Moody, and he was not a Baptist. Uh, He refused to identify with any denomination, and yet he is counted as a hero among many independent Baptists, other Baptists, and other evangelicals. But Moody was responsible for promoting this this issue that we really have with revivalism, and that is decisional regeneration. And he did that on a larger scale even than Charles Finney did, and through his influence that has become the predominant understanding of the doctrine of regeneration uh, in our churches today. Now, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, wrong doctrine leads to wrong practice, and so we have churches that are very confused with many wrong practices. The use of music in evangelism, the altar call, the church growth movement, the secret sensitive church, the purpose-driven church, the self-help gospel, all of those things come out of the doctrinal changes that were made in revivalism. Now, thankfully, though, there, there are some Baptists that do use methods that came out of revivalism and they're able to avoid the doctrinal confusion on some of these things, like decisional regeneration, uh, many, of our, many of the Baptists do not believe that, but the methodology, uh, certain things that they use that came out of revivalism, always leaves us with that danger that, that things can turn out terribly wrong. Now, Dwight Moody died in 1899, but the movement didn't die. By the end of the 19th century, it was very strongly entrenched and then it was taken up by others that, that kept it going until the present day. So what I want to do here for just a few minutes um, until we get to this summary that uh, that I want to do is, I want to mention a few of the other people that, that just bring us up into the time that we are right now. Uh, there are many of these that likewise, like um, Dwight Moody, are heroes to Baptists and other evangelicals, and the next one that we would have on our list that's probably one of the most famous of these was a man by the name of Billy Sunday. Uh, Most of you, I think, have you heard of Billy Sunday? You you know who Billy Sunday is. And um, Billy Sunday was a lot like Dwight Moody. He He actually knew more Bible than Dwight Moody did. And yet, at the same time, he sort of bragged about the fact that he didn't know a whole lot about theology. And I don't really understand that to any great degree. I mean, I, I don't understand how somehow we make heroes out of people that say, say I don't know anything about theology, are things that I don't understand. They had a very simplified uh, understanding of the things of God, but Billy Sunday did understand more than Dwight Moody did. He was a better theologian, if you want to put it that way, uh, uh, than Dwight than Dwight Moody was. But the other thing that really concerns us about him is that uh, many of these people, Billy Sunday especially, were more showmen than they were preachers. Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player and he decided to leave that profession to become a preacher and of course there wouldn't be anything wrong with that, but what he did was to adopt the Moody, the, uh, the methods of, of Moody and, and of Finney and by the early 1900s he was a very very successful evangelist. He conducted crusades all across the United States, and he was one of the first to mix entertainment with the gospel. And this is one of the things that's been said about his his revival campaigns, is that they had a circus-like atmosphere to them. And I've already explained to you some of the things that Billy Sunday would do, I think in another message, uh, running across the platform, turning turning backflips off of, of the stage like an acrobat, and He did those kinds of things and added those to his preaching. But uh, his preaching was also mixed with politics, with moralizing, and with humor. And I'm not sure when telling jokes became a part of preaching, but Billy Sunday certainly had a big influence on that. His preaching was loud and bombastic. He uh, took everything with a fire and brimstone approach. We probably need a few more preachers like that today. But that was his method all the time. He was a fire and brimstone preacher. And when he was finished, people were told to walk the sawdust trail and come to the front of the revival tent and they could be saved. Now you ever wonder where that term came from, the sawdust trail? It came out of the revival period. What they would do... Is they would put sawdust down in the aisles to keep down the noise of the people as they walked down the aisles to come to the front. And so, to keep the noise down, you walked the old sawdust trail, you came to the front, and being saved in one of Billy Sunday's revival was equated to coming to the front, shaking Billy Sunday's hand, and making a decision to receive Christ as Savior. And because his crusades were so successful, There were other denominations that adopted his methods, and when they did that, they abandoned their own theological teachings. It seemed like this was a good thing. Lots of people were getting saved, or at least they thought they were. And so many, many Baptists joined in with that. Uh, Billy Sunday, again, he's not a Baptist either, but people just loved old Billy Sunday. And I think that they failed to recognize that Sunday was nothing at all like the fundamentalist that we have today. He wasn't the separatist that fundamentalism is today. I mean, you would never hear Billy Sunday criticize Roman Catholicism. He was just like Moody on this, that he met with Roman Catholics as if they were evangelicals. Before his uh, campaign in Baltimore in 1916, he met with the Cardinal of uh, of, of Baltimore and and I think you know that that's the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking hierarchy here. And, and he met with him just like he was an evangelical. And that's, that's practically nothing different than shaking hands with the Pope. Sunday would use decision cards and when these were turned in at the end of the service and when everything was done, he had no trouble at all turning people back to different denominations, whether they might even be Unitarians and the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, that, uh, that's some of the things that, that Sunday did. So he handed his converts right back over to people that preached a false gospel and were heretical teachers. So to me, it, it's hard to figure out how Baptists would get involved with something like that. How that, you know, churches put on plays about the life of Billy Sunday, when those very same churches would not let Billy Sunday preach in their pulpit. I mean, they would be inconsistent if they did because there's not a fundamental Baptist that I know that would let a a Roman Catholic sympathizer stand in the pulpit to preach to their people. Well, we just don't do things like that. But then I wonder why Baptists do other things, how they can invite a person like Dave Hunt to come and preach in their churches when Dave Hunt spent most of his time among the Assemblies of God, among the Calvary Chapel, which got its start in the Jesus hippie movement of the 1960s. So I don't understand why Baptists do things like that, but as they say, politics makes strange bedfellows and apparently religion does as well. Now going on from there, Billy Sunday was in the era of another fundamentalist preacher by the name of J. Frank Norris. And uh, if you study these things out, you'll, you'll find that J. Frank Norris' name is also prominent. And he was a very interesting character. He was a flamboyant preacher that broke with the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1930s over theological liberalism. And he was a Baptist preacher that uh, was very heavily into politics. That dominated a lot of his preaching. But if you really want to read a, a captivating book about J. Frank Norris... Pick up a copy of, of this book, it's called The Shooting Salvationist, The Shooting Salvation, it's, it's by David Stokes, and um, you can, if you, if you have a Kindle or something, you can get rather cheaply on Kindle. But the interesting thing about it, it, it tells the story of an of a, um, investigation and a trial of a shooting when J. Frank Norris shot someone dead in the church office. Now, I've thought about doing that a lot of times, but I haven't come to that place yet. Uh, but that was, uh, that was something that happened to J. Frank Norris, and he killed a man in the church office, and this became a huge story all across the United States. And we're talking back in the 20s and 30s. I don't remember the exact date, but that became a huge story all over the country. Uh, people today don't know very much about that. And so there was a period when J. Frank Norris was in limbo between being a Baptist pastor and a prison inmate. Now, he he did actually uh, prevail in the trial. He did shoot the man dead. That actually did happen. But I think they finally decided that there may have been self-defense that was involved. So there were there were several others that came along during that time. Uh, in the 1940s, there was the rise of John R. Rice and of uh, Bob Jones Sr. Rice. If you've read some of his stuff, he's got some pretty good things. Uh, he's got a book on the family that will bless you if you read that. But he was uh, really an extremely poor theologian, if you want to use that term for him. And And again, if you study these things, uh, you'll find that John R. Rice actually became the butt of a lot of jokes about his ability to exegete scripture. But nonetheless, he is revered by some. Uh, Most of his influence comes on the issue of soul winning. Uh, He's very, very solid on some things. And it was really some of his successors that muddied the water quite a bit. But one of the things that John R. Rice did, he was a mentor to many fundamentalist preachers. uh, and, And what he did was helped to turn a lot of them away from the doctrines of grace. And if you ever pick up his book on the subject, you you would be surprised at the caricature that he makes of us who believe in doctrines of grace because uh, he presents things that we really don't believe. Now, if you disagree with me on a doctrine, that's fine. We can talk that over. If you're gonna disagree with me and write a book about it, I think that you wanna find out what it is that I actually believe. And deal with that rather than building some kind of a straw man that you can uh, tear down, the, and, and that's essentially what I think that John R. Rice does in his book. So if he presented a fair, um, a fair representation of the doctrines that we believe, that would be all right. We can disagree and we can go on. But I don't think that he did that. But uh, but of all of those, uh, we, we talk about uh, John R. Rice, uh, Bob Jones Sr. And but of all of those, the one who is the most influential that came out of that time the one who has influenced more Baptists and the whole nation than any other person in modern history is Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham has been counselor to presidents. He's called America's pastor, and he's the biggest of all because he came along at a time when there's easy travel, when you had television, and so he could be broadcast, and could travel all over the world to conduct crusades all over this world. And I think most of you are familiar with Billy Graham, so I don't really need to say a whole lot about him. But Billy Graham took decisional regeneration to, to another level. As I said, his crusades went all across the world. And one of the things that he did was to put in a new tactical maneuver. Now, we've talked about tactical maneuvers uh, in, in this whole study of decisional regeneration, what takes place in invitations and things like that. But what Billy Graham did was to add a new one and that was to seed the congregation with people that would go forward and draw people along with them to the front. And there he could get more people to make decisions, more people, it looks like more people are coming. And so Billy Graham used that method. He also uh, collaborated with Catholics and Roman Catholics. He turns, turns people, and they still do this, they turn them over to denominations for counseling that are wrong on the doctrine of salvation. And sometimes you, you might want to, when Susan, Susan Irvine, Suzanne Irvine is here, you might talk with her. She has a story to tell about um, going forward at a Billy Graham crusade and actually had to lead the Billy Graham crusade worker to Christ. I think that was kind of an interesting story. Uh, but also we're familiar with Graham's belief that you don't actually have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. That if you are sincere in what you believe, he says that the grace of God is big enough to include you. Now, if you're taking notes on this, this is important because this is what is called the wider mercy view, the wider mercy view. And that's agreed upon by uh, the universalists, it's agreed upon by many Roman Catholics and so on. But that doctrine, is heretical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that would be like the Apostle Paul saying to the Judaizers that, well, it's okay if you believe in circumcision for salvation. If you're really sincere about that, then that's okay. The grace of God is big enough to include you because you're honestly trying. You're really trying hard and, and you, wanna, you want to do what's right. So God's grace is able to include you. But the Apostle Paul, you know, he talked about the sincerity of the Jews. There's none that were more sincere than them. And yet he said if they continue in that belief, they're cursed. So we could never go along with that. But there are many Baptists that embrace Billy Graham. Generally, fundamentalists don't embrace him. And that's because of his friendliness with the Pope and also because of this wider mercy belief. So fundamentalist uh, wouldn't go along with Billy Graham. But he is considered to be America's pastor, and I suppose that he will be until he dies, and then that mantle will fall on Joel Osteen. And that tells you how far that revivalism has brought this country. And then there's another thing about Graham uh, some think that his belief in wider mercy was a, a new new thing that he came to. Later in life, when he wasn't thinking so clearly, and I've actually heard this excuse, that he wasn't thinking so clearly and, uh, and uh, in, in his pragmatism and so forth, he decided to adopt this view of wider mercy. Well, when that got going, uh, Robert Schuler, also a heretic, was very surprised to hear Billy Graham say what he said about this. Uh, and so the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association came out with a, with a statement about this in which they said, no, this is not a more recent adoption of a view by Billy Graham, but rather he was teaching these things as, and believed them, whether he taught them or not, I'm not sure. I don't actually, uh, have not actually heard him say it, but they said that back in the 1960s, he believed this. In the early 1960s, he believed this very same thing. So, all of this stuff that we've been talking about, this is the fallout of revivalism. When you change regeneration, what you've done is to affect the whole doctrinal landscape. And the really sad part of this is that Baptists have kept that alive. And if we're ever going to see an improvement here, what we have to do is to reverse things, reverse the downward trend, and that's to go back to pre-revivalism doctrines. But thankfully, we still have this promise in Matthew sixteen eighteen, our text, and there are still Baptist churches that haven't gone for those things. And so we still have some pre-revivalism Baptist. And I'm thankful that we can include the Brean Baptist Church in that group. Now, let me also say this, unless you misunderstand, because I think it's easy sometimes to misunderstand the points that I'm trying to make. And that is that very early, way back in the early part of the study, We went over the marks of a true church. There are many Baptists that do not agree with us entirely. And those churches are still true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I don't want to do is to tear down churches that have a a difference of opinion. They might disagree on some of our doctrine. Now, some of them aren't as kind to us about that but what we won't do we're not going to return the same kind of vitriol to some of these people by calling them heretics i'm not going to do that we love good baptist people we can fellowship with people that have a difference of opinion on certain doctrines we might be in disagreement but that doesn't affect that we're that we're true churches of the lord jesus christ and as i say they might not be as kind to us over these particular doctrines but uh, i am happy to say that There is a movement, as I've mentioned, there is a movement among some of the fundamental Baptists to return to the position that we have. They have rejected easy believism. They've seen the influence of men like Jack Hiles, who pushed the envelope towards decisional regeneration. And so they have rejected that. And as they reject it, they look more towards the doctrines of grace. Now, they aren't there yet in their thinking. They haven't come all the way, but they can read history. They can read history just like we do. And they can see that they are not where the Baptist church has been. And so we're thankful that there are some of them that do reevaluate that and they're looking at it. And I think if the Lord tarries, uh, this is the way that he works. Uh, you have these periods where people go off on their doctrines and then the Lord blesses and then there's a revival and there's, and there's a return to the doctrines that uh, Baptists have taught. So I think very, we might very well see that again, that we'll see more people returning to old time Baptist doctrines. Now what I had intended to do was that we would look at some other movements, that we would talk about other groups and where they got their start, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostals and so on. Those are 20th century inventions and they've certainly had their effect. I mean, when you have a, a broadcasting network like TVN that spews pure heresy across the world 24 hours a day, then you can well expect that they're going to have an effect. But rather than go into all of that, um, I talked quite a bit about those issues about a year and a half ago when we went through the Holy Spirit series. So I'm not going to go over that again. And if you would like more information on that particular thing, I would strongly recommend that you get the book Strange Fire which is a new book that was written by John MacArthur after the Strange Fire Conference um, um, about a year or so ago, or I think it's when it was. And that's a very good book, and that will help you to understand more about the beginnings of the charismatic movement and all of those things. So instead of going into that, what I'd like to do now is to summarize how the Baptist Church has proved itself to be the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this will, be, uh, this will be the ending of the series on church history. And uh, W.A. Gerald calls these the test of fruits. Now, if you haven't heard the name W.A. Gerald, he's a Baptist historian from the 19th century. I don't know if he's any, any relation to Tabor or not. Not that you know of. He probably wouldn't claim you either, so that's all right. Uh, no, Brother Tabor is a good man. I just joke with Brother Tabor. He's a good man. If he's related to W.A. Gerald, more power to you. I hope that you are. But anyway, he was a good Baptist historian. And uh, he calls these the test of fruits. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And so we should be able to look at a church and tell if that church that claims to be a true church is actually a true church. Now what I've done here is to take a few ideas from W.A. Gerald, and I'll talk about them and I'll throw in some different things of my own. So we'll share a few thoughts here about uh, the the test of the fruits of the Baptist church. And as I said, this will be the, the close of our series on history. Now there are a lot of these. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna to stick to eight of them tonight. And you don't have to worry because they're gonna go rather quickly. So we're not gonna be here a long, long time. Number one on my list, number, number one, the test of the fruits of a Baptist church is that Baptists have been truer to the great doctrines of Christianity than any other church. Baptists have been truer to the great doctrines of Christianity than any other church. Now, when you examine New Testament doctrine from the top to the bottom, what you'll find is a remarkable consistency among Baptists. That Baptists have stuck to New Testament teaching. We haven't added doctrines. We haven't subtracted doctrines. We're not in the business of making up new things that we don't find in the Scriptures. We we go by the Scriptures. For example, we've just finished up three or four messages on the doctrine of regeneration, and one of the very first doctrines that was perverted all the way back into the second century was the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration was was perverted into baptismal regeneration, and that took a while for that to get going, but by the fifth century, that became the cardinal doctrine of this newfound church, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, today, in almost every church that you can mention, there is some kind of an error about baptism. Either baptism saves us, or baptism is a, is a sacrament, baptism conveys grace, or that infants are to be baptized. And it seems like the only church that doesn't teach those kinds of things is the one that has Baptist, baptism in its name. And we're the only ones that don't teach the perversions of the doctrine of baptism. Seems a little bit strange, but we have baptism in our name, but we know what baptism means. We know what baptism stands for, and we know that it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. So Baptists have always stood against that error all of this time, not not giving in to so-called Christendom who's pressured us, tried to pressure us by torture and by death to get us to change that doctrine. Now, Baptists have lost their lives. More Baptists have lost their lives on the issue of baptism than any other doctrine. You go back to the Middle Ages and beyond that and through the Inquisition and all of that, baptism was one of the central doctrines that, that, that people were killed for. What do you believe about baptism? And Baptists have always stood for the truth of the Word of God on that. And then there's the doctrine of justification. The Protestant Reformation came along after the church was 1500 years old and the main thing that the Protestant Reformation did was to try to restore the biblical doctrine of justification. But what about the Baptist? Well when when Martin Luther was just getting that right Baptists were there all of the time preaching that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Catholicism had perverted it, the Protestants had Pains with it, trying to bring it out again, the Baptists were always preaching it. See what Baptists have never done? we 've never confused sanctification with justification. Now I hope you understand what the issue there is: that if you confuse sanctification with justification, what you 'll end up with is a work salvation. That the way that you're justified with God is by the things that you do, and that confuses sanctification and justification. But what Baptists have always done, they've kept these doctrines, we've kept these doctrines in their proper order, regeneration and justification and sanctification, and we've always taught them exactly like the Bible teaches them. Now secondly, Baptists have always rejected infant baptism. And that goes along with our consistency on baptism, but I thought that we ought to make a particular point out of this separately, because Baptists are the only major denomination that has kept infants away from the New Testament ordinance of baptism. Now, Roman Catholics and Lutherans make infant baptism a part of salvation. That, that of course, is the era of baptismal regeneration that we just discussed. And they believe that the, the, the sooner that you baptize, the better it saves, so why wouldn't you baptize infants? That only makes sense. And then there are others, uh, there are Protestants like Presbyterians in the Reformed churches and the Methodist churches that uh, they also baptize infants, but they don't do it in order for regeneration. They baptize an infant to bring that infant into a covenant relationship with a promise of regeneration. And by doing that, they bring the infant into what they call the visible church. That leads me to point number three, which that Baptists have always maintained a regenerate church membership. So we're not going to baptize babies because they're not regenerated. Baptism is for believers only and that's necessary so that we don't fill up the church with unregenerate people. You see the church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and you cannot be joined to Christ except by faith. And baptism is a symbolism of that faith. Baptism is is actually symbolism of the gospel and the Baptists are the only ones who have kept the symbol distinct from the real thing. The symbol just represents the real thing, it's not the real thing. And so the symbol actually signifies, or it must signify, the thing that uh, actually represents, rather, the thing that is signified so that there is no faith. If there is no faith in the burial, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then there can't be a symbol. And so when faith is present, that's when we know that the person that we baptize and bring into the church has been changed by the Holy Spirit. Now, when infants are baptized and brought into the church, they are raised or brought up in the church without regeneration. And so what you do is you fill up the church with unbelievers. And when that happens, you can't do anything but deaden the spirituality of the church and eventually kill it. You can't have... Uh, true doctrine with unsaved people. That's an impossibility. Now that gives me point number four. Baptists do not admit to any proxy salvation. Well what does that mean? Well here's where you can plug in the word sacerdotalism. You're the only congregation probably within three thousand miles that even knows what sacerdotalism is. Um, But that means that we don't have anyone who stands between us and God. You don't need a human intermediary to perform a sacrament in order to help you to get to heaven. And this is one of the reasons that we would never agree with infant baptism or baptism regeneration in general. Because that means there must be an administrator and the administrator becomes indispensable for your salvation. So that puts somebody between you and God. Now, what we believe that salvation is simply a matter of a conscience. Salvation is between you and God alone. And we reject decisional regeneration on that same basis because it doesn't take the persuasion of a preacher or some kind of fantastic tactical maneuver in order to convince you to turn from unbelief to belief. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates. And that's the work of God and God alone. Number five, Baptists have never been persecutors. Now, the issue of soul liberty that keeps us from baptizing infants also keeps us from being persecutors. That's one of our true, true fruits. We, d- we don't believe that persecution would actually benefit the Christian religion at all. And the reason that we don't is because none of us has the power to make Christians. We've never been a part of a government that established a state church and in places and times where the Baptist people were the predominant religious party, we've never forced anyone to accept Baptist beliefs. You can't force people to believe if you believe salvation is a matter of conscience. It's not a matter of outward conformity. And that's what a work salvation is, it's the outward conformity and we don't believe that that has any part of salvation. Number six is that Baptists have always had strict loyalty to the Bible. The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. Uh, As I said earlier, we don't make laws. We don't make canon laws. We don't add any doctrine or practice that's beyond Scripture or supersede Scripture. We love the Bible. And so we're very careful with the translation of Scripture and also the use of the Scriptures. Now, for example there are very few denominations that still use the King James Version. Now there are many Baptists that don't either, of course, but there's a large group of Baptists that that insist that we're not going to use anything other than the King James. And we're very careful about the Bible. We do believe that God preserves His Word. We believe that the original autographs pinned by those authors of the New Testament, that, that those words were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but we also go a step further in believing that the translation that God has given us has been preserved so that we can say that it's dependable, that we actually do have the Word of God in our hands even though we don't have those original copies, the original ones that were penned by the authors of the New Testament. So it's been, an pre- Old Testament, it's been preserved for us so that we have the Word of God today. And then to make another statement, and I don't know, some of you might stew a little bit about this, but I'll say it anyway we do not make the Bible God we worship the God of the Bible we don't worship the Bible now our belief in the Bible alone has led us to promote the reading and study of Scripture and the translation of it into the common language of the people that's one of the things that Roman Catholicism strongly resisted. They wanted to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people. And so when John Wycliffe came along, and he made his translation uh, into Middle English so that the common people could understand it, he ran afoul of the Roman Catholic Church. And so what they did was they booted him out, and you know the story how that later they dug up the bones of Wycliffe after he died, and they, they, they burned his bones and threw them into the river. So they've always stood against the, the use of scripture, but Baptists have always felt like there's no threat at all to the, for every believer to read the Bible. I mean, as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have, I have no fear at all that you're going to pick up the Bible and read about the things that I teach you and, and you decide for yourself whether I'm teaching you the truth. You, you try to understand the Scripture. We, we think that every believer can be guided by the Holy Spirit in the interpretation of Scripture. So we don't think that you actually need preachers to teach the Bible because you can't understand it. But you need preachers to help you or to aid you in your understanding of, the, of your own diligent study of the Word of God. And so that's why I encourage it. Take notes, read more, see if what I teach you is actually correct. Then number seven, Baptists fathered modern missions. Isn't that the great commission that God has given to the church to go and evangelize? Well, Baptists fathered modern mission. That's a wonderful fruit. Now, Baptists then have been at the head of mission movements when others, like for instance uh, in the 17th century when Uh, 18th century, actually, early 18th century, when uh, Presbyterians were teaching that it's preposterous to preach the gospel to heathen lands, Baptists were actually in the forefront sending out missionaries. And so you have William Carey, who was a Baptist and just happened to be a Baptist who believed just like Berean Baptist Church, he was actually called the father of modern missions. What Carey did was to take the gospel to India. Then there were others that followed him like Adonai and Judson who went to Burma and uh, Hudson Taylor who went to China. Then you had Luther Rice as well. And so you have Baptists that are going to all the different places of the world so that Baptists have always led the world in evangelism. And then number eight is that Baptists have always believed in the autonomy of the local assembly. And that means that this church, this body of Christians, rules itself under the authority of none other than Jesus Christ. Now, I'm considered one of the titles pastor, I'm the bishop of the church, that's also a New Testament word, and I'm the bishop or pastor of this church and of no other. And what you'll find or won't find in the scriptures is any central bishop a ruling authority over all the churches. Now, what we do have in the New Testament is the apostles who were the authority because they were uh, the teachers of the church. They were responsible for establishing correct doctrine for all of the churches. And so you find uh, Paul, who was, um, we consider, the greatest missionary of all time, who traveled around and started churches, and he stayed in contact with those churches, and he made sure that they were doing all right, and he did that under the authority of his apostleship. For example, he wrote to the Corinthian church within with an unveiled threat that when they walk contrary to the commandments of Christ, they were going to have to answer for that. And so he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, For though though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. And what Paul is telling them there, that if they think that his letters were strong, then they should wait until he gets there. Because if they had not corrected the problems, his personal presence was going to be a real problem for them. It wasn't pleasant. So Paul was an authority over churches, an authority over all churches. But that authority that he had over churches has never been transmitted to anyone else. We don't see that anymore in in, in the church in the New Testament. And so when the doctrine was established, The leaders of the local assembly, they had the responsibility of keeping that doctrine. So when you come to the book of Revelation, and there you see Jesus is addressing in those second and third chapters the the seven churches of Asia. He addresses the pastors of those churches, and what you don't see him doing is saying, What? You mean the bishop of Rome didn't tell you about this? No, you don't find that. He addresses each individual pastor because they had authority over that particular church. So what we don't have is apostolic succession. And what Baptists have always done is we have maintained the independence of each assembly so that for 2,000 years now we've never had a central ruling bishop. There is no synod, there is no presbytery, there is no council, there is no ruling board, there is no pastor of any other church that has authority over this Baptist church or any other Baptist church except his own. And as far as I know, there aren't any major denominations that don't have some ruling authority. But I don't find any Baptist groups that do. Now, that's important, what we won't do. We won't try to rule other churches, but it's also important what we will do. And what we will do is that we've always practiced cooperation among Baptist churches. Now, in our church in Kentucky, we had many like-minded churches that were in our fellowship. Uh, we were the same in doctrine, and so we had a cooperative fellowship. And so we would get together, and we would promote the same causes for instance, uh, a Christian school. Uh, the Christian school that we had was not run by one church, but was run by many Baptist churches that had come together to, to start a Christian school. We supported common missionaries, we had Bible conferences together, and, and importantly, what we also did was to help the other churches maintain a pure membership. Now let me explain to you how that's done, because we don't see much of this today. But if you were a member of one of these, one of our cooperating Baptist churches, and you had some kind of a problem, like you have an immoral lifestyle, or you've committed some particular sin for which you ought to be put out of a church, then what you couldn't do was to go and join another one of the churches that was in that same cooperating fellowship. What you would have to do is that you would have to go back to the church that you were a member of and you would have to repent of your sin and make things right with that church and then you could go and apply for membership in one of the other churches that were in that fellowship. And if you hadn't done that, there was really no hope of getting in. And what we did then was we protected each other from unknowingly receiving a member that would actually be a troublemaker. And then what we also did was we protected each other in baptisms. That if there was a church that was known for accepting improper baptisms then uh, the other churches would not accept that church's transfers into their church and uh, we would stop fellowshipping with that church that wasn't practicing baptism right. So to combat the problem, members that were coming from these other churches had to submit themselves for rebaptism. Unless they could show that their baptism came before that church went into error or they had transferred their membership to that church from a church that was right on baptism. Now that might seem a little convoluted for you and a little bit hard to to follow, but those are the kinds of things that you can do when you have many churches that are closely knit together in a strong fellowship. And so what we would do is we would protect each other in those ways. Well, you might ask them, well, what do we do here? Uh, How do we deal with these issues now? And I would have to say to you that we do the best that we can. We have people that come to us from all different sorts of Baptist churches that we don't really know anything about. And what we can't do is we can't go and check out the doctrine of every single Baptist church. And even if we did, I'm not sure how helpful that would be because the doctrines of today may not be the doctrines of yesterday in a particular church. So what we do is we just leave that up to the Lord. We do the very best that we can in this and if should should we make a mistake what usually happens is a person who's not right on these issues will either leave the church or they'll actually become right if they want to become a member here so today uh, among churches like berean and other fundamental baptist churches uh, we're the only ones that still maintain this belief in a local, visible assembly, and that baptism is under the authority of New Testament Baptist churches. And we take that right out of the New Testament. And the New Testament was good 2,000 years ago, and we still believe that the New Testament is good for us today. So those are just some of the things that you can think about and uh, you can appreciate about Baptist, that we bear the fruits of a New Testament church. Now, some people think, well, what you're talking about there, you're being a very arrogant person. I talked a little bit about this in in forum class this morning. They would say, oh, you're being a very arrogant person because you believe that Baptists are the only ones that write or write, and Baptists are the only people that are going to be in heaven. But you and I and Mrs. Rico, we all know that uh, Baptists are not the only ones that are going to be in heaven. But anybody who has believed in Jesus Christ, and they have Him as their Savior and faith alone in Him, they're going to be in heaven. But that's not the same as being in the right church here on the earth. There are many different churches and not all of them are right, even though they have saved people in them. And so we're very careful about this particular thing. And it's not strange that we should believe that we're the true church, because if we didn't, then what we would do, we would go seek the true church. We would try to find out what that church is, or at least what we would do is change the doctrines of our church so they'd fall in line with New Testament Christianity. So it's not an arrogant belief, it's a logical belief. This is exactly what we should believe in our church, that we are teaching the truth and that we are adhering to New Testament doctrine. So what happens then when a person's looking for a, for a church? What should they do? Well, what they should do is to look for a place that has these particular fruits that I'm talking about. Can they claim that they have these fruits? And if they can, and if they can show that, then we know that they are a New Testament church or a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, not an arrogant belief. It's a logical belief because of what Matthew 16:18 says. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." So that concludes our study. I hope that it's been profitable for you. And if I haven't answered all of your questions about church history, if you're still awake, that is, and I haven't uh, answered all of your questions, maybe what we might do in some future point is uh, I might even consider having a Sunday morning, oh, a Sunday evening forum class on Baptist history and we can just sit here and talk about other questions that you might have about it. We might do that one night. But uh, as far as we're concerned right now, that concludes the history portion of it. And I'll give you a, a couple more messages on some topics that I want to talk about in the next few weeks. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time that we've had to spend together and we thank you for the study that we've had on church history and how important that it is. And we're thankful, Lord, that there is a, there is a record, there, there is a history that we can claim for Baptist churches. We start with the New Testament and we look for the identifying marks there. And then we go through history and we find those groups of people that have adhered to that New Testament doctrine. And we find that just as you promised, in every age, and every time, there have been people that have held on to the New Testament and have not departed from the truths that we have in your word. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, we can claim tonight that in the Briam Baptist Church that we do believe what you've taught in the New Testament, what the apostles have taught. We don't want to change anything. We don't want to add anything. We don't want to put our opinions in. We simply want to know what does the Bible say and believe the Bible. So we thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we have here. Bless your people. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, ronard park california 94928 additionally you may visit us on the world wide web at www.bebaptist.org